Greetings, everyone. My name is Peter Diager, and welcome to the sixth episode of Y2K in Autobiography. The title for this one is It Was a Change Problem. When I got involved in Y2K, I, I saw it first as a technical issue. But as I progressed into the discussion, it became very, very clear to me that it, from my perspective, what I wanted to accomplish, this was not a technical issue. I personally would not be changing any lines of code. What I wanted to do was to try to get people to pay attention to this. In September of 1993, I'm up at Gerald Weinberg's consulting camp. It's a group of people that get, got together in September at Mount Crested Butte every year for about a week. What did we do? We taught each other. We gave courses to each other. We gave presentations to each other. Why were we there? Gerald Weinberg, a luminary in the field of IT consulting, anything you read by him is worth your time. He has a four-volume set of quality software management. If you're a consultant, if you're a manager, you need to pick up that volume, the, the, the whole set, read it from cover to cover to cover to cover. It's worth your time. He brought us up there because he thought that the people that he was inviting were notable in some way. I had a little bit of imposter syndrome, I must admit. I had no idea why he invited me up. In September of 1993, the Computer World article, A Doomsday 2000, was published, and it dropped while we were at camp. It was passed around because getting an article published in that magazine wasn't insignificant. Getting a feature article in that magazine was significant. I had no idea how they would react. And I was surprised, to say the least, that these people that I really respected and admired in many ways didn't see the problem the way I did. In other words, the most common statement I heard from everybody there was that someone will fix it by then. This is the phrase about Y2K and other problems that has been haunting me since 1979, where I go into my manager and say, we have a problem that's going to occur in the year 2000. And his response then was, someone will fix it by then, don't worry about it. In 1993, I get the same response from the people around me. And around that little sentence, someone will fix it by then, there's an entire structure. First question comes to mind is, who exactly is going to be fixing it? Who's the someone? What exactly is the reason that's going to prompt them to act where you're deciding not to act. When you say fix it, what do you mean by fix? How are you going to do that? We've talked about that in previous episodes. And when you talk about it, what, what exactly it is do you mean? Is it the same problem for you as it is for me? Well, obviously not. I'm not going to be changing code. You are, maybe. If you're a manager, you may not be changing code, but you may be directing people. Your problem might be getting the funds to do this. And then when we say, by then, well, when are you going to start? It's 1993. You have millions of lines of code. You have systems that you're not even aware of. So when exactly are you going to start working on this? So I immediately switch into my problem-solving mode. And I bring up an old methodology that I've used before. And that is Gibbons, Operators, and Goals. It's the simplest of methodologies for problem solving. And I gleaned it out of two different books. How to Solve It by George Pollier 
and How to Solve Problems by Wayne Wickelgren. Those two books are about mathematics for the most part, but this particular model, what do you have in your hand? What are the givens that you have to work with? What can you do with those givens? And where exactly do you want to get to? I immediately take out a piece of paper up at camp and I start sketching this thing out. What are my givens? Well, for starters, I have zero authority, zero credibility. I have no resources. I can speak. I've been speaking at conferences, so I have that as a means of communication. I can write about stuff. I mean, that's the article that we're looking at. Other stuff that I know is that the problem is real. I can demonstrate it. The problem is unbelievable. And this was an embarrassment. What do you mean your computer systems can't handle the year 2000? That was an unbelievable statement to hear if you don't really understand computers. You might manage them, but you may not really understand what they're doing. And for someone to say, well, we have this problem that we've known about for decades, and it's going to come due real soon, and it's rather significant, that is an unbelievable. <laughs> now, the thing is, the fact that it's unbelievable, does that work against creating awareness, or does it work for creating awareness of a problem? It's certainly going to get attention. Any article anyone writes that says your computers will fail on such and such a day is going to grab people's attention because it's an outrageous statement. We have a fixed deadline. Perhaps for the first time in the history of IT, we have a real deadline that we can't shift. Now, what, where exactly the deadline is, we can debate. You know, event horizons I've discussed. The banks were having problems in 1970 with 30-year mortgages. We know how to fix it, in theory. Make sure the calculations produce the right results. We know how to do that. I mean, we wrote the programs in the first place. We can do that now, too. We have the media as a resource, and at that time, there was this thing called the Internet that was starting up and becoming popular and available to every consumer. And the little dots in the end, my, in my thought process, that list is not complete. It doesn't have to be at the start of the problem-solving process. The operators part of this given's operators and goals says, what can you do with the things that you have to move you closer to your goal. In other words, how do you bring little changes about in pursuit of the larger change that you want to achieve at the end? So some of the things I knew that I would be able to do was create awareness, inform people, persuade people, annoy them to the point that they're going to prove that I'm wrong or attempt to. I can support them, demonstrate it, convince them, lead them, and others. What's my goal? Well, I want to get them, the outside world, to look at the problem. Just look at the code and determine whether or not this fellow is speaking through the top of his head, which is what everybody thought in the beginning. I want them to validate that it's real, and all they have to do is do some testing, and they can do that. And then, of course, I want them to start fixing it. Once those three things have been accomplished, look at it, test it, and then start, my job is done. But problem solving comes in many shapes and sizes. In reality, this isn't just a problem. It's a particular brand of problem. It's trying to get people to go from where they are to someplace new. Where they currently are is that, oh, someone will fix it by then. 
where I want them to get to is we need to fix it now. And, and there's a big shift there. But that's a change management problem, getting people to change their opinion on something to a drastically different opinion. Now, because it's a change problem, there are lots of resources available. John Cotter, he has a book, Leading Change. His change methodology basically says the following. First, you've got to create urgency. You've got to get a sense that this has to happen soon. And if you don't have that, you won't be able to move anything forward. Once you've got the urgency, you can create a band of people, a core coalition that will work together to do something. First thing they're going to do is form their strategic vision of where they want to go. You've got to move barriers out of the way so that things can get done for everyone that's on board. You have to continue the momentum. And then you, when you're at the end, you have to set that change in stone. He's speaking more about business organizational type change. He's certainly not speaking about Y2K. Now, one of the things about this particular episode that you saw, you saw it's part one of two. When I've started, I've attempted this thing three or four times now. And when I blend Y2K into the change discussion as the first pass, the presentation runs about two hours. That isn't good for a podcast. So what I've decided to do on this one is take a bit of a risk. For the rest of this presentation, this particular part, there's going to be very little discussion about Y2K. It's going to be a discussion about change because that's the way I saw that. In part two of two, when I conclude this two-part episodes, I'll be focused on what specific things did we do in the Y2K awareness campaign, if you want, that fit into the change models that I'm going to discuss today. So you may not hear any more about Y2K in this hour, but next time, it'll be inundated. I'll practically use the same slides. And what I'll be doing is talking to particular things. How did we create urgency? What exactly did we do to remove barriers with respect to Y2K? Here's my objective with the two parts. I want to give you a change template process methodology. And then an example, I'll give many examples today, of how you use that template to work with real life change problems. Next time, it'll be entirely Y2K as change. What are the things we did with respect to Y2K that fit into the change process models we're discussing now? The next model I, I tapped into was Kubler-Ross. Kubler-Ross has a model that everybody knows about, even though you may never have heard her name. And that's the denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance model. It's called the grief cycle. She observed that when people are given really bad news, i.e. you have cancer, you're going to be dying in six months, they tend to react in a certain pattern. The pattern is fairly consistent. It changes a little bit from person to person. But in the main, we start with denial, we move to anger, we start bargaining, we finally we, we get depressed, we can't change anything, and then finally we get to acceptance. We recognize that this is the hand we've been dealt, we have to do the best we can with it. Now, the next model is a very popular one. Everybody knows about it, everybody's heard it, ADCAR. ADCAR is a copyrighted trademark 
process, change process model, which I personally think is unfortunate. However, it's a good model. It starts out, and you'll hear echoes now of Cotter's model. It says create awareness. Well, that matches to create urgency. It creates a desire, in other words. Uh, get people to want to bring a change about. That connects to his form, the strategic vision, Cotter's. Create knowledge. You have to get knowledge. Well, that's part of getting everybody on board and forming a strategic vision as well. Creating ability. Make sure that you have the skills to do it. Reinforcement matches to set the change in stone. The last model I use, and this is one of the one things I learned from Gerald Weinberg, is the Virginia Satir change process model. This is the one I gravitate to on a lot of my change work. And that this process starts out with the status quo. And all of Virginia Satir's process circulates, revolves around a single observation, and it's this. People protect their status quo from unnecessary change. And once you have that embedded in your head, the rest of the model pretty much falls out naturally. From status quo, she says, look, something happens. There's a foreign element, something that is unique, that wasn't in your status quo earlier. In the terms of Y2K, it's the realization that, hey, it's going to happen real soon now. The rejection denial is our first response. That taps into Kubler-Ross's denial component. She talks about chaos, that when we start moving, everything gets disrupted. And that's a component. I mean, this is throwing a spanner into the works. The foreign element is the spanner, and it puts everything out of kilter for a while. And part of the process is, how do you get everything back together again in some way that you can move forward with it. So we go from chaos to integration, putting everything back together, and then the new, finally the new status quo. Four different models, but they overlap and connect in various ways. The reason they're different is that each one of these authors, Cotter, Kubler-Ross, Virginia Satir, and the ADCAR concept are all looking at the same thing, change, from a slightly different direction, different perspective, different focus. And because of that, they are different. But they're talking about the same thing. Oh, and there's one more. And this is the Bible, if you want, for change management. There's a book out called Diffusion of Innovations. It's by Everett Rogers. And this is the one that everybody sort of knows about. You know some of the language from the book. You may not have ever read or even heard of the book. The language that you know are innovators, early adopters, early majority, late majority, and laggards. Innovators are the people who start noticing a something new first, and they start embracing it. They make up a very, very small percentage of a population with respect to a particular change. After them come the early adopters, people who look at what the innovators have done and said, that makes sense. In the context of Y2K, I would be the innovator, so would many others. I spoke about earlier articles that had been written about in the 1980s, 1970s, and so on. I wasn't the only one. Early adopters are the first people in organizations who say, you know what, they're right, we need to start working on this. 
early majority is when the mass media get involved, most companies start getting involved. There's enough of an audience for conferences to, to launch. A late majority are the ones who are starting in 1997, 1998, and of course the laggards who maybe didn't get anything done. That's all the change models that I'm using. Now, all of those change models, like I said, are slightly different. What I've done in, in my practice is to take the change models and put them together into a change methodology that works for me. Everybody has the right to do that. You can take the ideas, you take your own experience, and you come up with your own process. In many ways, that's what all those authors did themselves. They looked at change and they come up with their own models for how to work with this. I have an eight-step change methodology. The start of it is read the books. In other words, step zero is no change in general. If you're embarking on a large change in your organization, let's assume that you're bringing in a brand new payroll system, then you really need to understand how change works. Can you just go out and tell people to do something differently? How do they react to that? If you understand change in general, you'll have answers to that. You'll understand terms like outlier and homophilia and heterophilia when you're the outsider in a group. You'll understand why involvement is far more powerful than dictating change. You'll understand that resistance is absolutely normal within the context of change. If I tell you to do something different, you're going to ask me a question. And that question is always going to be the same. Why? Why should I do that? On the other hand, if you decide that you need to embrace a large change, you answer that question for yourself. You will embrace huge change in your life. People do it all the time. They get married. They have kids. They move house. They change jobs. They do all of this automatically by themselves. Those are huge changes. But when you dictate a change, people aren't so quick to get on board. You tell everybody tomorrow that for starting tomorrow, you have to wear pink clothes. Now, wearing pink clothes isn't going to hurt you. It isn't going to be difficult. But I doubt that you would get an entire organization just to follow along because you said so. You would get some pushback, and rightfully so. All of this stuff you need to know before you start embarking on any type of change. For example, implementing a new payroll system, a new SAP, a new inventory system, a new way of programming, and you know, bringing in a project management office would be a huge change to many organizations. Bringing in any type of project management into some organizations would be a huge change. You have to know how that works in general. Once you have the base knowledge for bringing change about, then you can start focusing in on the particular change that you're trying to address. Example, payroll systems are a good example. There isn't a single organization that hasn't, at some point, tried to bring about a new payroll system. Well, why don't we go out there and find out what they're doing? In other words, there's no reason to do this alone. I'm a speaker, so I have a vested interest in the following statement. But I am a huge fan and supporter and booster for associations. Why? When I was back in the early days of running an information center back in the 1980s, 1990s, 
what I was doing, mandated to do, was introduce organizations, people in an organization, to personal computing. This is back in the day when personal computers weren't a thing yet. There was a time where there were no personal computers. Yes, I'm that old. My goal was to bring personal computers in. I joined a group called Information Center Exchange, ICE. And the goal of ICE was to share information about what it is we were doing. If I'm doing, implementing an IRMA board, an old board that used to drop into an IBM PC so that you hook to the mainframe, I don't have to do that alone. I can go to the association, I can go to the ICE meeting on a Friday once a month, and I can ask other people, how did you do that? In other words, the change that you're trying to bring about has already has a history, and there are accepted practices, even, I hate the phrase, but best practices. practices. This has been done before. There's no people, no reason to do it by yourself, reinventing the wheel. So we have to know the particular change. And some of the questions that we can ask about the particular change is, what's the foreign element? In other words, what's prompted this particular change as a possibility for your organization? If you can't answer that question, you need to do the research. You need to figure out, why are we doing this? What prompted this? What was the source? Another question that we can answer is, because we're answering it for ourselves and for our audiences, what happens if we don't do this? Who's going to be affected by this? We talk about stakeholders, but we really need to understand that when you bring something new into an organization, there are tiers, you know, circles upon circles of people it's going to affect. Some people it's going to create work for, but it won't give them any benefit. Other people will benefit greatly, but don't have to do anything to get it. Other people who used to be doing a particular thing, when your new change comes in, won't have to do that thing anymore. You have to know who all the people are that are going to be affected by this. You might have vendors who are affected by this. When exactly are you planning to do this? In other words, when's the delivery date? When's the implementation date? When's the big bang cutover for the change that you're trying to bring about? Why now? Why are you looking to do this this year rather than two years ago or next year? What's so important about now to do the particular change that you're thinking about? Why is the new payroll system being contemplated for this year? Why didn't you do it last year? What were the reasonings? All of those answers help people understand why a particular change is going to be necessary. If you don't have the answer, you, the change agent, trying to bring a change about, don't have the answers to these questions, you will not be able to put together an effective communications plan. This is basic change management stuff, but most organizations ignore it. I've been involved in change initiatives where someone will come in and say, you know what, I, I heard that a laptop is a really good thing for people. What we'd like to do is automate our sales force. Now, the person saying that is not a salesperson. They have nothing to do with sales. They know sales is important. They've heard about the laptop, and it's really nice and all that good stuff, and it can connect to the mainframe. But no one who's a salesperson is, is asking for this stuff. Now, there's an immediate disconnect. 
if you understood how change worked, you'd never start out by saying, we should do this to other people. It doesn't work that way. I have seen so many sales automation endeavors fail miserably because the salespeople were never involved. Involvement is crucial. And when we understand change and a particular change, then we, can, we know that before we go into it. The next step in the process is we have to establish a connection with the target audience that we're going to be inflicting this change upon. If I have an idea in an organization and no one else has that idea, I'm the outsider. I'm the strange person. I'm the Auslander, if you want. And we don't take kindly to people from the outside telling us what to do. So before I start bringing a change about, I have to somehow connect with the target audience. Why? So that they'll listen to me, that they might pay attention to me if they trust me a little bit. I don't trust the outsider, so I have to become part of the in-group. Now, some of the components for establishing rapport with people, making a connection is, first one, which is going to sound very strange, is don't have all the answers. If you tell people what to do, then you're, what you're doing is you're saying, I have the answer, listen to me. If you're asking for buy-in, what you're saying is, I have the solution, you must adopt it. We don't take kindly to that. It's far, far better if we adopt a Socratic method and ask questions, pointed questions, questions that are designed to highlight problems. How did this go last month? What problems have you had with this particular application over the last year? How much does it cost you? If you can get answers to these questions, what you're doing is showing that you're, you're not a know-it-all, that you want to learn from them. But yes, you have an agenda. You're asking specific questions to, to do this. And some of those questions are, well, are pointed. They're, they're asked for a reason because you want to highlight an issue. Support empowerment. When you go into an organization, when you're trying to bring a change about, it is far, far better to ask for help from those already there than tell them what to do. You have to get them engaged by giving them some power over the change management decisions that are going to be made. We have to find out, once they embrace the notion that there is an issue to be taken care of, what's their vision? And this is all in the service of making a connection with them, listening to them. What is your vision? What would you like to see happen? We need to identify who their influence leaders are. Now we're starting to refer, you know, refer back to some of the work, Everett Rogers' work, influence leaders. It wasn't in the list of people I, I gave you, but it's, it's in the book. An influence leader is someone in the organization that people look to. They don't have to have title. They sometimes do. But they are the people who affect decisions just by people looking at them and saying, what does Jim think about this? If we know who the influence leaders are, then we're one step up on our change. Part of the thing with influence leaders is that they can be both people who wish to embrace the change and also people who wish to resist the change. We have to know who those players are. If we don't, we could annoy an influence leader. 
And when we do that, we not only annoyed them, but we annoyed everybody in their group, in their clique, in their following. And now we have to convince all of them rather than just the one person. If we can get an influence leader on our side, that person can do the heavy lifting for us as we move forward. And one of the little mental hacks I've always used with respect to thinking about myself during a change initiative is that I am not a change agent. Change agent gives the image of James Bond, you know, 007, license to kill. I'm not a change agent. I'm not there to tell people. And the best way to change your own thinking about what you're doing is, think of yourself as an inflictor of change. You are gonna be the, the fly in the ointment. They had a perfectly good status quo until you came along. And the moment you came along, you're talking about changing the status quo. They don't appreciate that. You're not a change agent. You're an inflictor of change. And once we add that to our thinking, and then add a different, another component as my role in change is to make this as painless as possible. I'm like the dentist trying to remove a tooth. I'm an inflictor of pain by pulling the tooth out, but I want to make it as easy as possible. And as long as I have the as easy as possible firmly entrenched in my mind, then I can make the change go a little bit smoother. I can't make it easy, but I can make it easier. We have to understand the status quo of the organization. In other words, we have to understand where the organization is, how they got there. How long did it take your organization to get familiar with the existing payroll system that you have? You need to have that answer. How painful was the transition to where you currently are? In other words, what investment did they make to get to where they are. And why am I focused on where they are? Because that's the thing we're gonna disrupt. They could have worked, I don't know, 80 hour weeks for three or four months to install a particular change five years ago. If they're still there, they remember the effort, the investment they made. And now you're coming in and you're saying, we're gonna change that. You can't do that. You can't change something without understanding it first. If you read, there's a quote, if you really want to understand something, try to change it. When you try to change something, you get a deep understanding of what went together to make up the status quo. You have to understand that before you try to change it. If we don't, we're doing a disservice to our organization and our people. What values, what are the core values in the organization that you're trying to modify? If your core values in an organization has to do with profit above everything, then if you're coming in and you're trying to bring about work-life, you know, changes to make a better work-life balance, you're going to have a very, very difficult time. If, on the other hand, the core value is we really respect and honor our people, then making a modification to the culture to get better work-life balance won't be that difficult because what you're trying to bring about is in sync with the core values. So what are the core values of the organization that you're trying to modify? 
there was an organization that had salespeople all over the place. And the salespeople used to work independently of each other. They had their region, they had their territory, and they protected their clients. They, they held their client information closely to, to themselves. They did not share it. And the other thing is they got rewarded on their sales, as most salespeople do. So being rewarded for their own personal sales, protecting their client information, making it theirs and no one else's, and then staking out their territory, all work together to create a particular culture. The organization decided, because they read a book, they read a magazine, they read that magazine in the first class cabin at the back of the chair that talked about client relationship management, customer CRMs, customer relationship management. And the Proponents of this said, you know, you need to bring all of your customer data into one central place so that it can be shared. You know, you need to break down the silos. And the, one of the ways to do that is bring in CRM. Well, several organizations attempted to do that. But they attempted to do that without discussing it with the salespeople, without getting their involvement. And for the most part, these projects failed miserably because the core values of the salespeople were totally at odds with this notion of we're going to share all the customer information with every other salesperson. That wasn't going to fly, and it failed. The mistake made, not getting them involved, and not understanding the core values of the salespeople. What are the mythologies? What are the stories that your organization tells about whatever it is that you're trying to change? In other words, if you're... Organization is strong on customer service. What are the customer service stories that are told back and forth, especially to newcomers in the organization? How long have they been there? And the change that you're trying to bring about, is it going to erode those mythologies, those stories? Is it going to actually say, you know, we did that once upon a time, and John, who's the hero of this particular customer service story, today would not be the hero. He'd be actually going against what we want to accomplish. So what are the stories that you're going to be stepping on as you bring a change about? Who are the heroes, the heroines in your organization? And what will your change that you're trying to bring about due to their reputation. Will it change them? Do you have their permission? Do you have their involvement at least? You're hoping for their engagement. All of this so far is no change in general, no the particular change, sometimes by going out into the market, going out to your association fellows, and finding out how, how did they solve this? What problems did they run into? Making a connection with the target group, the group that you're going to be inflicting this change upon, and then understanding all of the status quo. Four items so far, and we haven't even started to bring change about. All we've been doing so far is collecting information about the organization that we're going to try and modify. Now we get to something, that, now that we get to the part where we actually start bringing change about, what we want to do is create a desire to change. And the way to do that is that burning platform concept uh, that was put out by Daryl Connor. And the idea there is, once you know the status quo, if you know it deep enough, you can point to problems within the status quo. Once you've made a connection with the target audience, they've shared that with you. So now you can ask more probing questions. 
What are the existing problems in the status quo? Status quo is never perfect. There are always problems and things that could be better. So what are the problems? How do you highlight those? How do you elevate the problems to the point where people say, you know what, it would be really better if we didn't have this particular problem. Now, once you get people to start talking openly and honestly about what problems exist in their status quo, you're now halfway there, believe it or not. All you have to do at this point is start saying, well, how would you solve that? If you were king for a day, how would you start fixing some of the existing problems that you have? And notice that I'm not saying, here's a solution to your problem. I'm saying, what do you think the solution might be? You're asking questions of them. And the best way to bring about change is to ask people what they would do in order to make something better. Once they answer that question, they're involved, they're engaged. Your job as manager, change inflictor, is to build a consensus from all of the different solutions that you're going to be offered once you start getting the conversation going. If a change was brought about, what are the personal benefits that the individuals in your target audience would achieve by implementing the alternatives they've just suggested? This is how you get them personally involved. One of the problems that we have in organizations when we bring change about is that the question is that comes up right after the why question is, What's in it for me? How do I get out of this? What this little component does is, what are the personal benefits? If you know what they are, then maybe, just maybe, you can deliver on that. If they see a personal benefit in something and you can highlight that, you're going to be increasing their desire to move forward. If you can accomplish that, then the change starts taking on a life of its own. Problems would a change cause? You have to understand that not all change is going to be good at every level. What core values does the change reinforce? We addressed that earlier, sort of. We're more there raising a warning that you can't violate the core values. Another part of core values is the change that you're bringing about. What core values will it reinforce? If you're speaking to a programmer and you're talking about the, the delivery times on projects and how long it takes to get things in and the fact that you've been late delivering projects numerous times. If what you're bringing in can solve that, be, because they don't want to be late. One of their core values is we don't want to be late. We want to meet our deadlines. Well, if the change that you're trying to bring about is going to help them accomplish their core value, they'll be more ready to get on board the idea that a change is necessary. And also with change, what opportunities are going to be created with when the change comes in? All of these combine together to create a desire to move forward which is absolutely what you want in any target audience. You want them to be motivated to move forward. There's a Mark Twain essay about paint washing, uh, whitewashing a fence. And the way he does it, he, he's whitewashing the fence. His friends come by and they're, they're, they're poking fun at him. Y'all, you go to work, we're going to go down to the swimming hole. And what he does brilliantly in the essay is that he says, well, th this takes incredible skill. I mean, 
you're not capable of doing this. That's why it's been given to me. And it's an honor to be doing this. And before you know it, he's got 10 kids, you know, lined up or whitewashing the fence. He sold it. And the opportunity that he created was that you too can be qualified enough, skilled enough to whitewash the fence. We like being praised for our, our abilities. He, he created the opportunity for these people, for the kids, to see themselves as being better somehow. And they whitewashed the fence for him. Oh, and they also paid him stuff. Um, a frog with no legs, you know, this, that, the other. But it is possible to entice people to want to change to the point where they beat down your door for the opportunity to make something happen. And that's where the desire becomes action. We have to know what their vision is. We have to know what solutions they can suggest. And the only way we're going to know that stuff is by asking them. If we, This is the go to the Gemba notion in Lean and Mean. Go to the people on the floor and ask them what they want. We'll be surprised, you're surprised when they actually give you the same ideas that you had. But there's only one difference now. When we go to them and ask, the answers they give are now their answers. They immediately have a stake in bringing this change about. Once they've identified what their vision is, the next step is to say, okay, what are you going to do to achieve that? And how can I help? What barriers can I remove that are in front of you in order to make it possible for you to achieve the vision that you've identified? And all I do now is I become a facilitator of the change. I created a desire by helping them understand that their status quo isn't perfect. I've asked them what they should do, what they could do in the future. How would they start doing that? And they'll give me some objections. But then my goal as the facilitator is to find ways around those objections. And if we can do that, they start driving the change. What commitment will they make to get this done? What, what are they willing to put into the game? What pound of flesh are they willing to invest in making this change happen? What resources do they need from you? When do they have a transition plan ready? In other words, by asking when will your transition plan be ready, you're suggesting, without saying it, you need to put a plan together. You're just asking, you're assuming that they're smart enough, knowledgeable enough to start putting a transition plan together. And with your guidance, they may be able to. Now remember, none of this sounds like Y2K, does it? This is every change. This is any change you have in your organization. All of these things apply. What we tend to do is we go into change blindfolded. We don't do the research. We don't do the research about change in general. We don't do it about this particular change. We don't know what problems other organizations have had when they've tried to implement this and how they solved it. We don't get our people involved. If the change is really necessary, they know that. All we have to do is give them an opportunity to be involved in the process. If we give them the opportunity to be involved in the process, they own it. And when they own it, they're more likely to make the commitment necessary to make it happen.
one of the questions we can ask and one of the pieces of information that we can communicate to people is what won't change? We can ask them the question, if you do this, what remains the same? When we are embarking upon a change, we have a tendency to think, oh my God, everything's going to change. The reality is that very, very seldom does everything change. Most of the time, 90% of what you did yesterday, you'll be doing tomorrow. There's only going to be a 10% change in your activities. We can handle the 10% change. On the other hand, when you get married, you have kids, everything changes. Kids are the, the ultimate in change. And we have kids all the time. Uh, we install payroll systems. We resist payroll systems and new ERPs and new ways of you know, running project management far, far, far more than we resist the idea of having kids. So we will embrace change if it's our idea, if we're involved, if we're engaged. Once people start making moves towards the new vision that they have, we have some more responsibilities. As the change inflictor, as the change agent, the change manager, we need to be very, very conscious of what's going on in our community. If people are making an effort and they have a success, we need to be rewarding that success. If they're making an attempt and they fail, we need to be recognizing they made the attempt because that's what we want. We want them to try to bring a change about. And what we need to do is reward the attempt. Ignore the failure. Yeah, they failed. They tried something new and they failed. Child gets up on the bike for the first time, falls down, gets back up. An hour later, the kid's on the bike and rides five feet and then falls down. We don't go up to the kid and smack the kid on the head and say, you know, stupid kid, you fell off the bike. What we go, we say, that was an incredibly good attempt. You went five feet. That's four feet longer than you did last time. What a wonderful job. I fell off the bike. No, you, yeah, we, you did. That's fine. It was a wonderful attempt. You made the attempt. That's all that I can ask from anyone embracing a change. Anyone who makes a mistake while trying to change for us needs to be rewarded. If we don't do that, we lose the the right to bring change about in our organization, as far as I'm concerned. All questions that are asked during a change initiative must be respected. The questions are real, the questions are honest, the questions are a search for understanding and meaning about what the change is all about. We need to ask and respond rather to all the questions that are presented to us. Yes, some of them will be tough questions, but we need to respond to them. And if we don't, they'll just stay there and they'll block all future communication. In every change initiative, there will be people, <laughs> there will be people who will resist what you're trying to do. It is best not to ignore them. It is certainly advisable not to insult them. What is advisable is to listen and even agree with them where you can. This is going to throw away the last 10 years of my life and all the investment I've made. Yes, you learned how to do this. It took you a long time. You finally learned how to accomplish it, and now we're going to change it. That sucks. That's difficult. We get that. Here's the reasons why we need to do that. Here's how we're going to help you do that. You have to acknowledge and respect the people who resist. If we don't, we're making a gross mistake with respect to bringing change about in our organizations. There will also be a subset of people who will be in absolute denial about what it is you're trying to accomplish. 
they will not see the need. Someone will fix it by then. Sorry, I got to keep harking that from time to time. They simply will not get it. Now, part of the problem with denial is that we think it's deliberate and intentional. It isn't. Let me give you an example. I do an exercise that's a lot of fun. In a workshop, I'll get people to break into groups of three or four. I'll hand them a deck of cards. And I'll say, here's what I want you to do. You're going to take the cards out of the deck. And what you're going to do is sort them into a particular sort sequence. And I put the sort sequence up on the, up on the board. So it'll be the ace of hearts, king of hearts, queen of hearts, and then it'll go diamond stuff all the way across. So there's 52 cards. That's a sort sequence. And the instructions to the group is that you're going to sort these cards into that sequence. First, you're going to shuffle them up, make them random. And they nod their heads and they say, okay, we get that. I say, okay, now there are some constraints. Consider it to be budgetary constraints. But there are some constraints to what you're going to do. And the constraints are this. First off, you need to identify who the card sorter is going to be in your group. So point to the person. The person with the most fingers pointing at them gets to be the card sorter. They do that. They identify the person who's sorting the cards. I say, okay, great. There are a couple more rules. First rule, no talking, singing, whispering, anything. You can't make a noise with your mouth in this exercise. And they, they look at me strangely, and they go, okay, we, we get it. Uh, no talking. Going to be boring, but sure, we'll do that. Oh, uh, another rule. Only the card sorter is allowed to touch the cards. They're the only ones who can touch and move the cards. And now they're throwing their hands up in the air and say, well, Peter, you know, what are the rest of us going to do? Well, uh, pretend you're management. You're just going to give advice, <laughs> except you can't talk. No problem. So they, they're puzzled, but they say, okay, you know, we can do this. So I go, three, two, one. Oh, one, one, one more rule. Sorry, I forgot. The, uh, the card sorter is blindfolded, and I take out blindfolds. And I say, okay, card sorter, wear the blindfold. And now they're, they're stumped. They're sitting there. The only person allowed to move the cards is blindfolded. They're not allowed to talk. What do they do? And they sit there for a period of time, and then they start figuring out stuff. And they, they do a couple of different things. We won't get into them. But, but there's one particular thing that happens is that the card sorter will start flipping the cards over so that everybody can see the card. And they do it slowly. Why? I don't know. Sometimes they speed up. I mean, they're not accomplishing everything, but they think if they do it faster, they'll be making progress. Finally, someone starts doing the following. They point to where the card should go. Think of it. The person's blindfolded, and they're pointing to where the card should go. And I walk up to them, and I tap them on the shoulder, and I said, you're pointing, you're making a visual cue to someone who can't see you. And they laugh. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's stupid. And they say, okay. And I walk away. And then I come back. And they're still pointing. And now we have a discussion. Why are they pointing? Why are they pointing, giving a visual instruction to someone who can't see them? Here's the response I get back. And I get this back all the time. If they could see me, this would work which actually gives us a definition of what denial 
is all about. Denial is the use of old habits that used to be effective but are no longer effective. And we, fi we find ourselves in denial all the time. Give me an example that you will relate to. Every now and then you'll have a power outage, right? The lights will go out. The power will go out for a while. How many of you have sat in the dark doing whatever it is you do? There's no power. You're not watching TV. So maybe you're reading by candlelight. And every now and then without thinking, you know, you move into another room or something and you flip the light switch. Well, you can't see. So you're going to flip the light switch. Do you know that the power is out? Yes. Why are you flipping the light switch? You're using an old thing that would work, but that no longer works. Denial is unintentional. Denial is simply an old habit that keeps reasserting itself. Uh, there are lots of examples. Uh, there's a bicycle, a special bicycle that you can jigger. And you do it so that when you turn the handlebars to the left, normally on a normal bike, that would turn the bike to the left. On this one, when you turn it to the left, you're, the bike actually turns to the right. Now, you can get up and try to learn how to ride this bicycle. And the first couple of times, yeah, hours, you're going to be falling off. You will not be able to steer this bicycle. And sooner or later, your brain will get out of this denial state. And it will figure out how you maintain your balance on this bicycle. And now you'll be able to ride around like you've always done. And then you switch back to your original bike. And your brain is back in the denial again. You will not be able to ride your original bike without a tremendous amount of practice again. Denial is not intentional. This is one of the things that you learn when you know change in general. Denial is just a condition that we're in. How do you deal with it? Patience, uh, reminders, constant reminders, more patience. Sooner or later, people get it. Finally. After you've reinforced the new behaviors by rewarding success and rewarding attempts and answering all their questions and not ignoring the resistors and helping people through denial, we get to a point where we can create closure. We want to celebrate the achievements that people have made. We want to hold a good goodbye party. I don't know how many of you have had a mortgage burning party. You've paid off the mortgage and you're going to burn that mortgage. You know. You put a tremendous amount of effort in, and, and now you want to celebrate. Uh, the reality is that we need to celebrate the passing of old status quos. Why? It's a way of rewarding the effort that we've invested to get to where we are now, the new status quo. One of the reasons we need to celebrate is so that the next time we need to change, we'll know better. We'll know that it's for a good reason. We'll, we'll learn from our past. We know that change is a constant. We know that we're always going to be moving to new status quos and that we respect the effort that people make to bring it about. Now, like I said, this was an overview of Y2K as a change project focused on the change aspect. In the next episode, we're going to go through the entire thing again but talk about specific things that we did during Y2K that tapped into the models that I've just identified. So we'll be back more focused on Y2K. This is a bi-weekly 
podcast comes out about every 14 days. The premium content is located at www.vimeo.com slash on-demand slash Y2K. This is where you get the webinars, the, the visuals that, be, that are behind the conversations that we're having. And it's also where you're going to have the interviews that we've had with people from the trenches of Y2K. Now we've had small, you know, consultants from small computer from consultants from small companies who had a small number of clients. We've had interviews with people who changed 5,000 plus personal computers within an organization in a four or five month period. We've had John Koskinen on to discuss his role in the office uh, of Clinton's office as he went from this is a government problem to this is a nationwide problem to this is an international problem and his whole process there. And one of the ones that I'm really looking forward to is going to be with a journalist who wrote about Y2K and get his perspective on what Y2K was all about from their side. I mean, we've dinged the media a few times. The media were a part of this. They were a partner in this in some ways. They were also the obstructionist in some ways on Y2K. And I thought it would be useful to get their story about how they saw Y2K and how they saw people like myself. This is the ongoing podcast, Y2K and Autobiography. The objective of this is to give the background story to what was on going on behind Y2K, the Y2K that was in the media. You can contact me at pdager, P-D-E-J-A-G-E-R, at technobility, T-E-C-H-N-O-B-I-L-I-T-Y.com. Oh, and for the premium content, if you want to sample it, uh, here's a promo code, 70% discount for viewing, renting any of the interviews, any of the videos that you are listening to but not seeing. The discount code is Y2KDAGER, D-E-J-A-G-E-R, all one word, Y2KDAGER, no spaces. And you can use it and you can share it uh, around. It's got limited usage. Uh, I didn't create an infinite number of these, so there's a number. But uh, the sooner you use it, the sooner you get to use it. Leave it too late, they'll be all used up. So thanks for attending this time. And I look forward to bringing Y2K back more into the story on the next episode. Episode 7, how Y2K figured into the change. Take care, folks. Be good. Have a great day.